Welcome to Absolute Destiny, a podcast. I'm Autumn. I'm Chesney. And I'm Carly. <laughs> I just Did I told fuck it you. up already? I just told you. <laughs> I'll introduce you. <laughs> I did fuck it up already. <laughs> Hooray. Uh, and this is a show where we watched the 1997 anime Revolutionary Girl Utena and review it. Uh, Spoiling the, the reveal here is Carly, who is our resident Nanami understander, who we brought back because this is a Nanami episode. And today we have with us our visiting Nanami understander, Hannah. Hi! <laughs> Hannah, um, I love Nanami and um, yeah, that's what I have to say. <laughs> so... Uh, listeners might remember uh, Hannah's one of the folks who's written into the show before and has had a lot to say on Twitter and we figured why not let's just bring her on the show for the the final of like the Nanami episodes as a set of episodes this is the last one um, the Nanami episodes were actually written separately from the rest of the show uh, they were written by a, a different writer which is why they have like a, a very different tone to them. But they were ultimately still like animated and directed and all of that by the same team. It's just this is part of why like it can feel a little disconnected. But this is the last one of them. And this one is a trip. So before I launch into like my whole thing about this episode, what did you guys take away from this one? I mean, my first assessment of this still stands. Um, Shugo Tarot took the entirety of <laughs> the first <laughs> the first fucking clip of this show or this episode and ran with it and developed a whole show and around the concept of what happens when a girl lays an egg. Uh shout out Shugo Tara real quick. I have to because it's one of my favorite shows because it's so fucking ridiculous. But yeah, it's all about a girl. The egg even really looks unhinged. The egg yeah. even looks the same or yeah, similar. It does. Yeah, with the patterning and everything. Yeah, because it's not like a normal chicken egg or something. You know, it's green and red and has a pattern and yeah. So Shugo Tara saw this and went, Yeah, we can do that, but better. <laughs> just made a whole show about it um, over a hundred episodes yes over 120 something episodes uh go watch it on crunchyroll but that's not what we're here to talk about my take on this episode is that it's like a metaphor for puberty and that's about all i've got well that's okay not good but i want like somebody else to talk about it <laughs> Oh, listen. Yeah, you at least oh, caught, like the big one. <laughs> yeah. I also have like, several choo choo is... theories, but I want somebody else. Yes. To <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, this is actually the episode where it all came together for me. Like it all clicked that the entire show is a metaphor for adolescence. Like somehow, my, my very first time watching this two decades ago, that wasn't clear to me as it is now. Like, I know hearing that, anyone who's a fan of the show is like, oh, well, it's obvious. But think about your first time watching the show. If nobody told you that was the point of the show, I don't know how obvious it is until we get to, like, this episode or perhaps, like, some of the Black Rose ones. Um, 
for me, this was the episode where it finally clicked that like the entire thing is a metaphor. If you don't figure it out by the ending, the ending will beat you over the head with it. <laughs> and by that, I mean the ending of the show, um, not just this episode, but like now is that point where we're veering off even from like the magical realism into just full metaphor territory. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like too, like with the cars and like when Akio, like a couple episodes ago, when Akio was like, "Oh, uh, drive the car, Toga," and Toga's like, "No." Yeah. Oh yeah, that that's absolutely that is absolutely sexual grooming going on there. Yeah, <laughs> like, uh, we talk about that like extensively in that episode. <laughs> and I feel like to Hannah's point, it really isn't that obvious to the viewer that it's like a metaphor for the whole show is a metaphor for adolescence um, and puberty until the car is brought into effect and the way that they talk about it and like taking control and blah, blah, blah. You're like, Oh, this is a metaphor for sex. Oh, we've been talking about puberty this whole time. Well, see the reason I didn't understand it was a metaphor for adolescence is because I grew up sword fighting in school. Um, I had to fight my entire student council. It was a whole thing. <laughs> Please, Otto. And, like I didn't, I didn't understand the metaphor because like that was just reality for me. I was so okay. Stunned. I literally had a minute where I was like, "Wait, West has fencing." <laughs> West, though. <laughs> I was like, "Was Autumn the kid who brought the sword to school?" Like <laughs> the things you could do the before big, Columbine. The, the big backpack. Yeah, for real. <laughs> Um, as I definitely date myself. Um, anyway. <laughs> so listen, I, <laughs> I have to be honest with y'all. Um, so at the point where you all were, you know, rewatching clips of the video and getting your notes together, uh, if you were curious what I was doing, I just went and put on my full Freudian hat and I pulled up a 648 page dissertation by Barbara Creed about the monstrous feminine and Ooh. that's going to be my talking point today <laughs> I've okay. been out here for this whole time. Here for it <laughs> I'm actually just a Freudian analyst it's fine <laughs> we were in grad school together where do you get that from <laughs> oh my god oh this happened long before grad school this was like already here <laughs> Oh man! Just keep it under wraps uh, until I get around like like the right people, I guess. But a Freudian analyst, though, L like listen. specifically, I am sure Carly will jump in to defend Freud on this one, but I will do it also. Which is when it comes to analyzing specifically the idea that like women can suffer from mental health issues. Freud was a pioneer, like. Before him, it was all just plain sexism. He ah. was the one who really broke ground and said, no, these women were victims of abuse. And like, that's what you're seeing. It's not, quote unquote, hysteria. It, this is the normal stuff that you would expect to see from somebody who's been abused. Um, and so for all of like his weird psychosexual stuff that he also gets into, um, this piece of it, he actually did break ground on on that, uh, on talking about like women and mental health, specifically that women can have legitimate mental health concerns that are not, you know, just being women. Okay, I'm on board now. 
<laughs> yeah, no, he he definitely brings up some very good and valid points. So the episode itself opens with Nanami in flashback, sort of. Is we is revealed to be a dream, but like it shows up in first in black and white with a four rose border, and this is a unique frame. Like it's a diamond frame instead of like the scroll work, the metal filigree. Um, this is like a just a diamond frame blacked out with four roses. Um, I think this is probably the only time we ever see this frame also. And she finds an egg. And the first thing she does with it is hide it from her dad. And I'm going to say put a pin in that because we're not there yet for that conversation. But it'll be relevant later. Um, then she wakes up finds the egg in her bed and then has this like surreal sequence of picturing all these different animals that lay eggs uh specifically uh she has very vivid ones about chickens and frogs and the different kinds of eggs that they lay and Um, turtles yes and turtles and those three are going to continue coming back throughout the episode and she sees all this she sees the egg she ponders this for a moment and then just unleashes this primal scream displaying a shocking failure of the comprehensive sex education at Tory <laughs> academy for real <laughs> um this or maybe is a- she just unlocked her heart's egg maybe <laughs> that's all for real. The fact- i'm sorry the fact again that it's like a diamond screenshot and it's uh, the yellow rose i'm like Shugotra really copied everything. I really can't. There's a yellow <laughs> there's a yellow diamond egg in Shugotra that's like made a big deal out of. So anyway. <laughs> so, so clearly looking down between her legs and finding this egg in her bed is supposed to be her first time menstruating. Like that's the metaphor. It, is, it cannot be more clear than that. But because this is a Tori Academy. There's no one who can responsibly and reasonably explain to her the biology of her own body. And so starts a spiral of madness (laughs) about trying to figure out why the fuck there's an egg in her bed. (laughs) Poor girl. Literally cannot imagine waking up to an egg. Like blood is one thing, but an egg, like I couldn't. I could. Chugo Chiraz prepared me well. <laughs> I'm ready to hatch that guardian. I'm ready. Oh my god. <laughs> I feel like this would be an important point to mention that since uh, the last time I was on the podcast, I have uh, since become a mother to five teenager chickens. Oh, uh, yes. So there, there's going to come a time where I will walk outside and there will be an egg just like magically hanging out hopefully it won't won't be in my bed but (laughs) (laughs) if it is i think i have bigger things to worry about (laughs) teenage Um, chickens are they like rebelling kind of kind of (laughs) so i've been observing them for the past few days this i'll try to make this tangent brief um (laughs) so i have i have one first of all all my chickens are named after mario characters and I have one chicken who isn't, 
uh, because I couldn't get behind naming a chicken Toadette. I just couldn't do it. <laughs> so I so I named her Winner instead. And Winner is the instigator of all conflict in the coop. She is oh not the God. most dominant one. But whenever I open the door, Winner is like, holy shit, something's wrong. We've got an intruder. And then all the other chicks are like, oh, no, let's run away. <laughs> so if she wasn't there, it makes me think, wow, the rest of you wouldn't hate me so much oh god is that's that all i have like, to say about that is it like winner winner chicken dinner yeah <laughs> yes yeah yeah that was the inspiration yes thank you thank you for getting that now carly you know from your group dynamics uh that if winner wasn't there someone else would just fill that role it's true it would be princess mm. fucking Peach. so it's easy it to it's would. easy to blame winner because winner's the proximal cause right now. But that role needs to be filled by somebody. And so somebody would step up. That's true. Every group <laughs> needs a divergent member. <laughs> Feels so oh, boy. Academy. This is going to be so much chaos to edit. <laughs> <laughs> so really quick before we move on with the episode. We don't know at this point like where their parents are. Toga and Anamis, correct? We it's just like, oh, they just exist in a house and we haven't seen their parents until we saw the flashback with her dad just now, right? Correct. And okay. we also don't know the specific relationship between all of them. Um, like yeah. where things are at between them and what say cause for concern there might be. <laughs> um so a lot of that stuff gets revealed in a few episodes so we'll get there and there's going to be just a mountain of stuff to talk about with nanami and toga analyzing that relationship in light of that stuff but yes th this is i think the first time at least since maybe his birthday that like i think his parents showed up in the flashback about his birthday okay um which also that means like i have to correct something i said in a previous episode where I said, like, there's no dates pinned down for anything in Utena. And that's actually not true. Um, his birthday is, I believe, June 4th, which puts episode, whatever episode that was, like, seven or eight. Um, that puts that at June 4th. And we know that the school year begins in April because Japanese school years go from April to March. Mm -hmm. Um so all those first episodes happen within the span of about like a month. After that, we come completely unmoored from time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we have no idea how much time has passed, but presumably less than a year. We haven't seen anybody else's birthdays. Um, but like that's like the one date that anchors the show after the beginning episode. Um I just wanted to say that because I was thinking about it because we brought it up, but yeah. Um, so Nanami lets out the scream about finding this egg and we cut to Suabuki reading off her schedule, but obviously she's a little distracted at the moment and she's carrying the egg in her pocket. And so she reaches into her pocket to like reassure herself that it's still there. And I'm like, honey, if you've been carrying an egg in your pocket, you will know if it is there or not. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and if it has broken, 
Um, but she's like repeating to herself in her head, calm down, calm down. You've never heard of anybody laying an egg before. So what does that mean? And her brain spirals down that thought rabbit hole and lands on the idea of her being caged with a bunch of other animals. And so like we see like the chicken, the frog and the turtle again, all of them in cages. And that shot perfectly parallels episode four with the way she was trying to mock Anthe. Like, believing everyone would ridicule her for this is exactly the fear that animates her plan to do this to Anthe. Because in her worldview, being strange is cause for mockery. And so pointing out how Anthe is strange will get Anthe mocked and rejected. So now we see that thought process is core to Nanami because like in this moment, the first place she goes mentally is I'm weird. I'm going to be rejected. Yeah. That's definitely one of her core fears being perceived as weird and being rejected by society on some level, whether it's her friends, classmates, people that she sees sees as peers, etc. I think too she feels like erased because when I think like she's all like blacked out and when you think back to like that episode 4 like nobody's face is blacked out because she's in like the in group, you know what I mean? Yeah. And then when she's ridiculed, she's like nothing. She doesn't even have an identity and image. That's also why I think the opening quote unquote dream sequence is so interesting because, and I'll talk about this at the end of this the episode review, but I don't think it was a dream, personally. I think it's entirely possible that she found this when she was younger. Um, because if prior episodes have led us to believe anything, uh, it is that once Otori Academy has its, like... <laughs> has its claws in you. It never really lets you go. Um, So in my mind, it's entirely possible that like, she's been a part of this picture from the very start. Um, And Otori Academy hasn't let her go yet. So she's still here and still experiencing this. I kind of agree. I kind of see that dream. Like it could just be a dream, but I feel like there's more to read. Like, you can get more out of it if you see it as like some sort of core memory of hers. Cause she was already like feeling ashamed of that egg when she found it. Like she hid it. Like she couldn't let her dad see it. Obviously we don't know her relationship to her dad, but um, yeah. Yeah. I think that there's multiple reads into the scene. I think it's like, if you're picturing it through the lens of adolescence and puberty, it's like maybe she did something that, um, or something happened to her that would have been more expectant in during puberty and not as a child. Um, and she hit it. But then also I like to see this in the literal sense of this is not the first time that she's experienced this and not just talking about metaphorically, whatever the puberty thing was, but literally finding this egg. I don't think it's the first time. Yeah. That's an interesting take, but also explain why she was so upset about it. Yeah. Like, oh, no, not again. <laughs> and to, like, lose it again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did any of you have to do that activity in school where you have to, like, 
take care of an egg and make sure it doesn't crack in order to like mimic no, having but I a small wanted child. To. Oh, listen, <laughs> I had a whole fake baby. <laughs> oh, technology had moved on to that point by then. You had like a, the fake baby that monitored your every action. Yeah, that one. And it would like cry and I don't think ours wet themselves, but I've heard that those exist. Yeah. Um, thankfully, my baby, I think, had some kind of battery malfunction that or I just didn't wake up if it cried. But it slept through the whole night and I brought it back the next day and everything was great and I passed. So <laughs> I guess it was fine. We had a class like that in high school that I did not take. However, I didn't take it because I learned from when I was younger, much like Nanami in this episode. Um, when I was a kid, I asked for an amazing Amy doll um, because she looked so great in the commercials. She had like these magnets on her teeth. Um that and I'm sorry, on- what? what? Yeah, she, yeah, she had these magnets on her teeth and the corresponding magnets on um like food items that you would give her. So she would register like what you would feed her. Um, but she also like cried in the middle of the night and in the early morning. And after one day, I like threw that thing out of my room. So oh, no. <laughs> this is um a tale of why I'm not a mom. <laughs> <laughs> All right, can I please put on my Freudian analyst hat now? (laughs) Sure. You never needed permission? (laughs) No, well, okay, first of all, um, I have no idea why anybody ever would want any type of doll that makes noise because as I've gotten older, that has become like exponentially more terrifying to me. But anyway, (laughs) um, when you were talking, it reminded me. It's an animatronic doll it's not annabelle <laughs> <laughs> might as well Listen, be. you don't know that at three o'clock in the morning okay <laughs> speaking of annabelle however um i had this section of this i don't know if it's a dissertation or just a paper pulled up but there is um a, a real analyst named julia kristeva and she has this um concept called abjection And the definition that I found in here is um, objection, that which does not respect borders, positions, or rules, that which disturbs identity, systems, order. Um, And in, like, general terms, uh, this analyst attempts to explore the different ways that objection works in society by separating human from non-human. And so... When I watch this episode, I'm thinking, oh, okay, well, Nanami's experiencing an objection right now. Not objection, abjection, AB. Um, because she just laid an egg, and that's not something humans are supposed to do. Just like humans aren't supposed to, you know, rise from the dead. That's another abjection. And the this paper sort of argues that in horror films that happens a lot to women and it happens in a particular way because the feminine is perceived as monstrous so anyway mm-hmm. um i think it's interesting that not only is nanami now laying this egg but she's comparing herself to birds reptiles and amphibians so the only thing we don't have present is a marsupial, which is a mammal that lays eggs. 
So yeah. I guess Nanami is a kangaroo. I don't I don't know. Well, <laughs> well uh, yeah. no, uh, that's not the um, uh, that is not the branch of mammals that lays eggs. Um, oh yeah. It's, oh, you're um, right. You're right. My bad. God. Um, those Whatever are platypuses. Yeah, yeah, those are monotremes. Monotremes. Ah, yeah. You know that off the top of your head. I was a biology. I'm major. sorry. A what? Oh. I feel like I'm learning something new. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was a biology major. Um, yeah, monotremes are the the mammals that lay eggs. Um, marsupials house the the young outside of the womb for a portion of their developmental period, and then um, placental mammals are the the whole rest of them that have a placenta within the uterus that nourishes the fetus for the entire term. To your point, Carly, about um, pointing out that she is identifying herself as like uh, identifying with an amphibian, uh, a reptile and a bird. She also throughout this episode repeatedly uh, berates herself and calls herself an alien through the perspective of other people that she thinks are going to call her weird. Um, so she does just feel completely othered. Just and the shadow like, girls are like, you don't get to sit at our table. You are not one of us. Yeah. <laughs> you can't sit with us. Yeah. <clears throat> she doesn't even go here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I gotta say, Carly, that is like some galaxy brain shit that you're bringing to the show and this is exactly why we we brought you on yeah uh, very good. pull my weight <laughs> listen it took me three episodes to get here though carly <laughs> i've fully thought when you were like while you all were doing this i was i thought you were fully gonna say that you immersed yourself in like nanami and just like sat there and waited for someone to bring you a sandwich or something <laughs> Listen, I immerse with Nanami every time I go sit out in that chicken coop. <laughs> Carly is just like, Andrew. Yeah. And snaps her fingers. <laughs> Andrew's I swear partner. to God. <laughs> I swear to God, I thought you were going to say that you were waiting for like a snack to be brought to you or something. I mean, who's to say I'm not, but. Yeah. Anyway. No. Anyway. You should move so, on now. Yeah. Yeah, so Nanami takes a ball in the face, and so Utena comes running over to check on her, and Nanami's like, you could have broken it, and she's just beside herself about this. And Utena very legitimately is like, I could have broken what? I'm, is something broken? What, what's going on? <laughs> she was so nosy about it. She kept asking. <laughs> And yeah, she does. Now, kind of on the other her. hand, she could have very easily gotten a broken nose from a soccer ball in the face. Just exactly. Yeah. So, like, she could have very easily recovered from this encounter, but she was so flummoxed that she couldn't. I'm like, you could have said your nose. You could have just know. said your face. <laughs> we have some pretty clear visual evidence of how durable Nanami's face is from the last time she took a ball to the face. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but, Nanami's like built different, like honestly. <laughs> her skull, steel. Her body <laughs> obeys cartoon rules in a way that nobody else on the shows actually does. Like Choo -choo. she 
Uh, that yes, actually, that's fair. She and Choo Choo yeah. both follow like Looney Tunes cartoon logic as far as their bodies go. Everyone else is a little bit more realistic. Um, we actually see real injuries sometimes. Like, for instance, uh, Kozue in the previous episode, uh, her ankle gets injured. Nanami can take a ball to the face at full speed and pop up and be just fine. Yeah, not um, to mention fall off a mountain being chased by elephants. Yeah. Yes. Like, she survived that. <laughs> and so, in this moment, um, her brain does that thing where she thinks that they're going to compare her to a space alien, like Carly was mentioning. Um, and she reacts to this completely made-up scenario in her head with total fury at Utena, and again throws the boy-girl boy insult at her and storms off, leaving Utena to be like, the fuck, man? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I felt bad for Utena in that moment. She, like, looks at her clothes, and I think she internalizes it a little bit. Like, it's one of those insults that has enough truth to it to, like, actually draw blood, but yeah. I feel also like Utena has... a. At least now, after her duel with Toga way back in the first arc, I think she's at least a little more confident in her position at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm, like, torn between, does she internalize it or is she, like, questioning it? Because she's gotten called it before and she was offended before, but now she's just kind of, like, however she felt about it. I think it's also a, what the fuck, I thought we were cool, man, (laughs) (laughs) moment. Because, like, Nanami hasn't been at her throat for a while now, since their duel. So, I I see it as li- a little bit of a Mickey situation, where she's like, come on, I thought we were cool, I thought we were past this. I mean, that's just Utena being Utena. That is just, like, her pure Capricornness coming through, <laughs> of just, yeah. like, I'm over it, so obviously you should be, too. There's nothing <laughs> to get upset about. <laughs> Um, so Nanami takes it to Mickey, the smartest person around to figure out like, what is this thing? What's going on? And he does his analysis of it and says like, it looks like it's freshly laid, but it's clearly not like a chicken's egg or anything like that. And this is where in her mind, she hears Mickey condemning her as an alien and Mickey does this like pirouette on the desk. <laughs> but she centers herself enough to ask an actual real question, which is, you know, saying like, suppose it was laid by a certain girl. And now she's finally like probing for real information about this. And she's trying to be cautious about it to not reveal anything about herself. Because again, like, She's terrified of vulnerability because that means people can hurt her. If they knew the truth, people could hurt her. Suppose my friend laid this egg. Um, <laughs> definitely the vibes I got there. But Asking also, for a like, friend. Yeah. Yeah. But also, like, too, I feel like Miki, first of all, like, they're friends. Like, they're pretty cool. And also, Miki is kind of, like, considered somewhat of a feminine guy in the school. So he's somewhat less threatening to go to for something like this. That just put in my head the scenario that if 
Utena was in this position, she'd have gone to Akio and like how horrible that conversation would have gone. Uh. Oh, God. So now that I have been cursed with this thought, (sighs) I spread it to each and every (laughs) one of you. You're infected. Oh, my God. (laughs) Well, I'm about to curse you with something else. I don't think you can tell if an egg was freshly laid by looking at it through a magnifying glass. But what (laughs) do I know? (laughs) I think think Mickey is trying to act a little smarter than he is right here. But then again, I also thought marsupials laid eggs for two seconds in my life. So maybe I shouldn't be. (laughs) Maybe I shouldn't be so hard on him. But all I know is, Mickey, there is a way to tell that. And it is not through looking through a magnifying glass really he should have been using a flashlight Mm. right like it's called candling where you put the Uh, egg to a flashlight and you can see if there's a chick inside or if the egg has been fertilized which i guess is not necessarily the same as its freshness so the way you tell if an egg is fresh is you put it in a bowl of water and if the egg sinks then that means there's like less air in the egg and if it floats then it means that more air has had time to penetrate the eggshell is a membrane really because um like oxygen can sort of flow in over time so i might be talking out of my ass there too but i do know that you can tell if an egg is bad if you drop it in a bowl of water and it floats because it has had more time to like gather an air pocket inside of it and you don't you don't want that i've had food poisoning from an egg don't recommend oh my yeah God, and it then so, it was bad the ones that are freshly laid have an uh, additional membrane on the outside um that's what i was questioning can you even see it um but i do know that's why you don't refrigerate um or why you don't have to refrigerate a freshly laid chicken's egg you can leave it out on the counter because the membrane will protect it from going bad and bacteria that's what that's oh, for oh right right i see what you're saying that's what gets washed off yes yeah. that's yeah, the difference yeah. between fresh and store bought anyway enough egg talk in this episode yeah, about we're eggs. having <laughs> we're having our own comprehensive sex ed right now yeah we are <laughs> specifically about chickens so this is where mickey helps her out by saying like well i've never heard of a girl laying an egg like humans don't lay eggs but there are some mammals that do unfortunately nanami only hears the part of yeah some mammals do and has completely (laughs) checked out of the conversation for the but humans don't part of that because she takes that and internalizes that piece of, oh, I must be one of the girls who does lay eggs. And immediately her fear is, am I the only one who didn't know this? And so now she's worried on another level of being embarrassed about being the only ignorant one. Not only being weird, but weird and ignorant. And this is where the puberty metaphor for this episode really clicked for me because When you're that age and stuff is happening to your body and you don't understand it, you're immediately like, am I the weird one or am I not the weird one? Does everybody go through this or is it just me? I don't know. And Nanami has seemingly had nobody there to guide her through this and tell her. Um, It's funny, too. If you all remember at the beginning of this episode, Suwabuki mentions in her class schedule that they've changed P.E., 
to be a women only feminine hygiene class for the day. That That is a really good point. So (laughs) she even missed that. So she hasn't had any kind of like, here's what a normal person experiences or here's what people experience. Here's the variety of experiences. She has no clue. And it's just, she's just snatching onto anything, any little piece of information anyone will give her and just, God bless her, taking it and running with it. I was cursed with being the first person in my class to hit puberty. And mm-hmm. it hit me between third and fourth grade. It was that early for me. Ooh. And so by the time sex ed came around, that was like five years late. <laughs> Well, and that's what I was talking about with when she initially finds the egg at the beginning of the episode. Did something like that happen to her where like she hit a growth spurt? She started growing dark hair on her legs. You know, like, was there a first sign of puberty that she felt compelled to hide or try to hide immediately? Obviously, you can't hide height. But was there something there that happened that she tried to hide? And or was it that she just found an egg when she was younger? And after you said that, too, um, she hid it from her dad. She didn't hide it from her mom. And I feel like that's really relevant. I couldn't yeah. say how, though. Well, I mean, yeah, I can see that. Feeling shame from, uh, I think that's normal. Like, hide, trying to hide things from another sex, you know? Like, oh, maybe dad will think I'm weird if I do this or something. Like, it shows us what her relationship with her parents is, that, like, she knows this isn't something she can bring to dad. Like even sex and gender aside, like the idea that she's hiding it means there is something in that relationship that says asking dad these kinds of questions or maybe questions at all just isn't done. I have many friends with kids who are much more comfortable asking these kinds of questions than Nanami is clearly, but that speaks to the parenting as well. Like that says something about their relationship that I think is very meaningful. And that's the piece where I'm saying like, put a pin in that. That's coming back. (laughs) Yeah. And you make a good point that this episode highlights that Nanami does not have a person that she trusts enough to confide in. Right. Like she takes a gamble with Mickey. Even in the episode, she's like, maybe, you know, but she doesn't have even amongst her her chosen three in her clique. She doesn't have a single person that she feels like she can confide in. Right. Like this is the scene where the trio shows up. Keiko, Aiko and Yuko are there. And rather than confide in her people, she's like, wait, I think I'm the only one who didn't know this. And they're going to mock me if they find out that I was ignorant this whole time. So she has to conceal not only the egg, but her ignorance about the egg from the people who she should be able to rely on. But that just goes back to like Keiko's episode in the Black Rose Saga of how fragile this friendship is. Yeah. Like it is, it barely qualifies as a friendship. It's more like, it's not even like, uh, it's not even frenemies at this point, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You serve me in one way and I serve you in another. You literally serve me in some capacity 
and in exchange i give you like street cred basically a social status she's a mob boss like for sure <laughs> it's a popularity internship yeah <laughs> so she runs off and she bumps into jury and jury drops her bowling ball and this is this is a moment where if you don't speak Japanese, the pun isn't as clear. But Jury says, you almost scratched my ball. And they keep going back and forth about your ball, my ball. Your ball, my ball. Which ball? This ball. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the, the pun there is that egg is tamago. Ball is tama. And so there's a misunderstanding there in terms of like, Nanami thinks that Juri is just referring to an to an egg in just a cute way, but really they're talking about two completely different things. Um, that pun doesn't carry over into the English translation. Um, we don't associate ball and egg quite the same way. Like, I get it; it's there, but like this is actually a, a this is wordplay that is very difficult to localize. So I wanted to explain like that piece of this conversation. Like there's another layer of this that's happening. Um, it's also just funny to think about it as like <laughs> Nanami trying to interpret some like hidden code. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then like a jury proceeds to assume that Nanami knows she's talking about a bowling ball and she says things like, yeah, it is really big. Like, I started out with a small one, and they keep getting bigger. Yeah. <laughs> Which makes sense if you know she's home. talking about a bowling ball. <laughs> I think, um, too, like, Jury has the little shine, like, even before her, like, bowling ball moment, like, when um, Hanami sees her. So, like, I don't know if she's already looking up to her or is already, like, intimidated by her or what's going on there. I think it's definitely some level of probably both because jury's kind of like a model student in a way. Um, and definitely a literal model. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and definitely like a model student council member. I mean, for goodness sake, <laughs> when they part ways, jury gets a strike on her first throw. <laughs> and jury by all rights should be in charge of the student council. And this is a moment that lays bare what that difference is, where like Nanami is rattled by something. And rather than showing like calm leadership in this moment, she is full on panicking in front of one of the people who is supposedly one of her subordinates. Mm -hmm. And instead, we have this moment where she's taking her cues from jury and misinterpreting them, but she's kind of following jury's lead on this conversation and not realizing that they're talking about two different things. Which in a way kind of works out because it allows Nanami to accept what's happening to her because she thinks that it's also happening to jury, even though it's not. But her relationship to the egg changes after that. Yeah, this is a turning point. Yeah. yeah. This episode really is a testament to how far a delusion can go. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Nanami. Yeah. Yeah, no, and I feel like um, it definitely, it has some visual ties to the cow episode. I forgot to note them, but, um, and then just again, like, with how 
easily she's influenced or how strictly she's influenced by other people's opinions of this egg or what may be an egg, just like what she thinks they're saying about it. Um, Yeah, she really internalizes those. Also, just the like next part of the episode that we get being this like montage and set to this (laughs) fucking awful, like what I categorize as like, a 50s Christmas song. Like, <laughs> it's the equivalent of, like, those claymation, like, kind of stop-motion older Christmas movies. <laughs> Songs. <laughs> That's immediately where my brain went when it started playing. And I was like, oh, God, we're trapped in, like, suburban hell. 50s suburban hell in this episode. I can't believe you don't like it. I love... <laughs> okay, I love that song. Okay, but do you like like the love song that plays later? Oh, yeah. That is gorgeous. Um, I have some things to say about that one a little bit later, but yeah. So yeah, this song is Hello, My Baby. And I think this is a really sweet scene. Like, it's super adorable. Um, because then we see Nanami shift from being embarrassed about this to being more maternal about the egg like she's taking it with her everywhere we have the adorable shot of her wearing it in her towel in the bathtub which is just like the greatest gift gift that has ever been gifted to the internet um i smile every time i see it and so cute and so then we have the commercial break i have no beef with the montage by the way i just have beef with the song The montage is cute. Okay, and I'm just going to say some of this now, but all of Nanami's, like, songs are, like, from the 60s. Like, this song was from the the 1960s. The other one, Scatter the Dark, which is, like, a huge one, um, released in, like, 1969. And then Dona Dona from the Cow episode was translated in Japan in the 60s. So, like, I tried – I actually tried – my roommate just knows a lot about a lot of things and I tried to talk to him I'm like what's going on in 60s Japan to see if there was like some sort of link there um there was like an economic kind of increase um but nothing like culturally related to like the family or like young girls um so no leads there but all of like the Nami's important songs are from the 60s for whatever reason well there was the economic boom of rebuilding post-world war ii yeah, And that was continuing well into the 60s. And that makes sense as to why my brain categorized it in that same like Christmas song era. Because in hindsight, I think most of those were made in the 60s and then going into the 70s too. And there was a strong push culturally to, um, to westernize, like to hold up basically America as the cultural and technological ideal to strive for. Which is where, like, in the 80s, there was a lot of anxiety in America about Japanese electronics companies suddenly beating America at its own game. Um, Which is where, like, a lot of, like, the cultural bigotry started to simmer under the surface in America about, like, Japanese cars, Japanese appliances, stuff like that. It has since pretty much died back down. But there was a hot moment there where... Japan saw what America was doing and then was determined to do it better. And so the the push to absorb like the lessons 
of Western culture wasn't limited to to just music. Like this is where, you know, um, Astro Boy basically copies the Disney animation formula and kicks off anime. Um, stuff like that, where this is part of a, like a larger trend. But thank you for finding like the songs. I was actually trying to look those up myself. Uh, I'm glad somebody actually managed to find them. That is fantastic. Yes, she has fantastic songs. And as well, I'm glad you brought up the westernization because he brought up as well that there was like a factory fire and like it killed a lot of people. And there was this belief that because the people in there were like wearing kimonos, they couldn't run as fast. It was found to be untrue, but that was also like a big cultural thing to like push them to like westernize more in their clothing. So a lot of Nanami songs are in relation to a time when um, outside influences were (laughs) influencing them. And I think we see that with Nanami and Toga and not just their relationship, but their portrayal of upper class life is very much modeled on the the kinds of images of Western aristocracy, Western upper class, as opposed to Japanese upper class. Mm. And, you know, we see Toga with a cell phone. I mean, I keep going back to the cell phone thing. In 1997, yeah, a teenager with a cell phone is definitely a class signifier as opposed to just like really late in life to be getting your first cell phone, which it is today. (laughs) Yeah. But like at 17 to have a cell phone and to be physically capable of, you know, driving a car in Japan, that is a huge class signifier as opposed to the way it would be in, in the present. Um, So in um, this paper that I keep, referring back to it goes through multiple different horror films and talks about like the different abject feminines and interestingly i have never seen the film alien because i am a scaredy cat um however i know what it's about and in this paper it talks about the abjection that occurs in alien is this idea of the archaic mother which is a mother that can birth without like another entity so essentially like immaculate conception um and i guess maybe i'll talk a little more about this later but what reminded me about it was um like nanami's relationship with this egg becoming more maternal and now she's not scared of it she's taking care of it and nurturing it and i mean my mind just immediately went to well what if there's something bad inside this egg Like, what if there's a monster in there? And, like, maybe, I I don't know, (laughs) maybe her her gut instinct in the beginning to be afraid of it may be right in some parallel universe. So just interesting things to think about. I think that's a fantastic point about the idea of, like, an egg being an inherently unknown. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And, I mean, I guess... If because this whole episode is a um, like a metaphor for adolescence and puberty, menstruation can kind of be like that for a lot of people. It's this big unknown. You hear about it a lot, but it's not like uh, it's sort of just a concept until it occurs. 
And I think that's all I have to say about it right now. But I'm gonna I'm gonna come back to the alien metaphor later. I think. No, I'm glad you brought that up. Just because, like, obviously it's all a puberty metaphor, but I think it's a lot more fun to like look at the egg as like consider all like um, all the angles that this thing could be because it could literally be anything. It's an egg. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and obviously like sexuality or like gender are like a big thing that um, could also be inside this egg. Um, oh my god, I am not even going to dive into the topic of Nanami's egg being an egg, uh, a trans egg joke, but <laughs> it has occurred to me, it. it has occurred to me, like, I, I tend not to read those reads into this show. Um, I know that there's a lot of folks who do. It doesn't connect with me on that level, so I... I don't feel like as confident in in those reads, but but I get it. I, I get where folks are coming from on it. <laughs> but like this one feels a little on the nose, <laughs> especially yeah. considering like the egg terminology is definitely like a 2013 thing, um, <laughs> not a 1997 thing. Yeah, I just feel like to me that it all being puberty is so on the nose. I want to see what else I could read into. So yeah, fair. That's that's fair. That's my thoughts. Yeah. Listen, I think the theme today is just going off the rails. So <laughs> yes, <laughs> absolutely it is. So to it's steer kind of the theme with every Nanami episode back onto <laughs> the track. <laughs> so then we have the commercial break, and we come back, and Nanami is again singing to the egg, which again we see her. Uh, this like maternal side come out and like this to me also speaks to like a a psychological transition in in maternity as well of like at first the kid is the scary new thing and then you're holding it and it's like i don't know what to do with this but then like pretty soon you just do what you need to do and and suddenly you can't imagine life without it and you forget what it was like to be that scared (laughs) yeah um, and so like we see Nanami making that journey as well. So like there is like a maternity side of this as in addition to the puberty piece, um, which obviously those things are like very intimately linked already because you can't have one without the other um, in terms of like your body physically being capable of birthing a child. This isn't anything about like adopting or anything like that. I mean, like physically birthing a child requires puberty. <laughs> Um, Suabuki goes to Nanami and says, Hey, if there's anything going on, if there's any, if you have a problem, just let me know. I will do anything to help you. And this is where like the maternity thing really hits home for me. Nanami goes like full mom brain on this and is like, really anything? If I asked you to run 300 kilometers an hour or fly at Mach 5 or dive a, a thousand meters into the ocean, could you do it? No, those are impossible. You are making promises you can't keep. And like, this is that new child panic coming to the surface with Nanami, where she what she needs in this moment is absolute certainty in something. She needs something safe. She needs the people around her to be safe because she needs to protect kiddo which in this case is an egg and she isn't at the stage of understanding acceptable risk which is a thing that like every new parent goes through 
And so, like, in this moment, she is berating Tsuobuki for not being perfect, <laughs> which is, like, a totally understandable thing that new moms go through. New parents, really. I shouldn't gender it. Like, new both parents will have this moment of being completely terrified of anything going wrong. And we see that anxiety just, like, bubbling over in Nanami in this scene. I think it's interesting, too, that, like, um, Suabuki goes to, like, Utena and Anthe again. Like, they're the couple to go to because he goes to them and, like, Mitsuru's impatience. And yes, yeah. I don't know what to say there, but I like that they're a safe place for him to go to. And it's interesting that they are. This, to me, gives off a little bit of a flavor of, like, a lover's spat. Which I thought was interesting. Like, you hit the nail on the head, Autumn, with it being, like, about new parents and acceptable risk. Um, I do think it's funny because it's new parents. So, like, one of the parents being, uh, you know, really wound up and anxiety-driven about, like, what if something happens to this? You can't protect it, blah, blah, blah. And then runs off. And then the other one is just left there being like, what? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Which I feel like happens in unions a lot, especially, sorry, I'm going to out this here, but especially like hetero ones <laughs> where one of them is like, wait, what? And the other one is like, you wouldn't understand and just runs off. <laughs> so it's, I do think it's funny too, Hannah, like you said, that Suabuki goes to the resident queer couple to figure out what just happened. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I need some reasonable lesbian energy in my life right now, and you two are it. So right, <laughs> they and definitely were giving me couple energy, but I was like, I don't know if I'm just being me. <laughs> what were you gonna say, Carly? I was gonna say, and then there was that great moment. I don't remember exactly how it went, but Anthe, as she does, is just like walking around with a chicken named Nanami. And makes a comparison about Nanami being a chicken. And, and Utena was like, well, that's not very nice. And Anthe's like, it wasn't? That wasn't exactly what it was, but that was the energy. Yeah, so she <laughs> drops like this epic shade here of even Nanami deserves better than being compared to a chicken. And Anthe's response is, does she? <laughs> Anthe has this habit of naming her animals after Nanami. (laughs) The cow was also named Nanami. It is so interesting, like, the relationship Anthe has with her animals. I'll talk about it more at the end when we talk about Choo Choo and the egg. But, like, I don't know. There's something there. But anyway. Choo Choo is the only one she hasn't named Nanami. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That must get so confusing. (laughs) Wait, no, no, the snails, the snails. Oh my gosh, the cute name she has for the snails. Oh, yes, that's right. Yeah, and the weasel. And the weasel, I think, right? He's just Mr. Weasel. Oh. (laughs) So as Nanami gets more contemptuous, like, more animals are named Nanami. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, like, in that scene, Anthe also compares uh, Nanami's reported behavior to uh, maternity blues. Uh, she says that her chicken gets the same way after she lays an egg. Um, and Anthe asks, like, the million-dollar question, so wait, who's the dad here? <laughs> <laughs> Archaic like, mother, just... there isn't one. 
Like, let's just assume for a second that Nanami actually laid this egg. And I guess we're assuming that it's fertilized. Who's the dad? Or, and I will likewise get into this later, but or real life Nanami is actually Anthe's golden goose that lays this egg (laughs) once every couple of years (laughs) that hatches Choo Choo. Her beloved companion. <laughs> whoa, whoa, hold up. We we did not get a warning to put on our tinfoil hats for this one. Wow. <laughs> no, you sure didn't. I think Carly's got something with the archaic mother and Nanami. Is that another like Shugo Chira thing? Or is that something oh, no. else? That's no, just no, that's paper. That's that's this Barber Creed paper that, <laughs> that I'm reading off of. Um, let me see if I can find a little bit. So the comparison she made was from the movie Alien. Um, maybe this is... This is just basically my moment of throwing on my tinfoil hat, grabbing the mic and going, Nami is the <laughs> archaic mother. <laughs> That bears choo-choo. It says, although the archaic mother as a visible figure does not appear in Alien, her presence forms a vast backdrop for the enactment of all the events. She's there in the images of birth, the representations of the primal scene, the womb-like imagery, the long winding tunnels leading to inner chambers, the rows of hatching eggs, the body of the mothership, the voice of the life support system, and the birth of the alien. She's the generative mother, the prephallic mother, the being who exists prior to knowledge of the phallus. This archaic figure is somewhat different from the mother of the semiotic Cora produced or er, posed by Kristeva in that the latter is the pre-Edipal mother who exists in relation to the family and the symbolic order. Wow, I made my head swim a little bit. <laughs> And it's funny because, like, I've never seen the movie Alien, but I've read this paper enough that I actually know what the entire plot of Alien is. <laughs> you should so see that sometime. Like, it, it is worth seeing. Yeah, well, and I agree with you. I think it sounds awesome. However, I would be signing myself up for nightmares for a couple of nights. So... <laughs> you can power through that. Ah! <laughs> I just have to time it properly. (laughs) Just have to time it properly. That's all. So anyway, that's the description of the archaic mother that's in here. Okay. Okay, And no, I will not elaborate further on my Nanami is the golden goose that lays (laughs) choo-choo once every couple of years theory. (laughs) Oh, I will be taking that and running with it later on in the episode. (laughs) So this next scene, I'm going to put a content warning on this one for the rank homophobia that yeah. falls out of Toga's mouth in this scene. Oh, it was pretty um, So she's talking to Toga and uh, Nanami says that she is working toward their glorious future together. And she asks Toga, if you had to choose, would you prefer a boy or a girl? Now, dramatic irony moment here. We know that Nanami is talking about the gender of the baby. Toga is thinking about who he's going to fuck next. Yeah. And so he's like, well, girls, obviously. And Nanami's like, good, good choice. (laughs) (laughs) She's like, I prefer girls too. And he gets very serious with her 
and lays it out that that is wrong of her. And he gives his like homophobic speech about God's plan and how men and women join together in quote, the best sort of way, um, which is pretty rich coming from Toga, who is now Akio's handmaid in like all right. the shenanigans that go on. I was about to say, weren't they in bed together like two or three episodes ago? Yeah. (laughs) And not to mention the fact that he's had a relationship with Sionji. So like your own internalized homophobia is really coming up to the back. I don't know how canonical that is, but it is very easy (laughs) to read that relationship. Oh, it's canonical. Oh, it's canonical. (laughs) Read the text. (laughs) It said right there. I opened the book and it said, no, I'm kidding. It's very interesting that in the show, he drops this homophobia bomb when, like, this is probably something that would more closely align with, like, manga version of Toga. And it is completely out of left field for something like movie Toga. And I don't normally, like, compare them this way. It's just, like, an interesting moment, you know, like, metatextual way of the different versions of this character where like this is the version that was given the chance to give this speech when it probably more closely aligns with the toga as was written in the manga but nanami doesn't exist in the manga like she's in a single photograph as like backstory like we know that he has a sister but we never actually see her and then in the movie nanami barely exists she's in one scene and it's not even the Nanami that we're thinking of. So, like, I I just find it interesting. I find it interesting that it's here and that this is where his head goes. Um, also, I think it's interesting that it's given to Toga to give this speech such that, like, it isn't the show coming down on the side of homophobia. It is put in the mouth of one of the characters who we have come to trust the least. which I don't think is an accident either. Yeah. Like this is that difference between depiction and endorsement. Like it is a depiction of homophobia. It is not an endorsement of homophobia. And it feels like we obviously get like Nanami's empathetic view. We see how much it hurts her and she's like the protag of this episode. Right. So another non-endorsement. Either way, it still feels really out of left field. Like I... I guess I shouldn't be surprised that it happened, but it was just like, we're going to be homophobic to you now, Nanami. Like, he gets so serious. But I feel like that's the thing with Toga. He's so, he's like got her under his thumb, sort of, and he has to lay down the law. I was going to say he's so far up his own ass, he doesn't know, like, why he's saying what he's saying. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He has no self-awareness in this moment. Well, and in the show, isn't he kind of used as a vehicle to uphold a standard? Yeah. So this is him yet again being used to uphold some standard. And there's a piece. Yeah, exactly. Like, And I think there's a piece of this that may actually speak to his own anxiety about what is going on with Akio. Like, yeah. On some level, he knows that what's happening is wrong. And like, this is ideologically like what he pins it to. Like, this is where he lands when he's trying to like figure out, okay, this is wrong. This feels wrong. I know this is wrong. 
I've called Akio evil to his face. <laughs> um, and so like he needs a reason why it's wrong. And I, and like this, I think might be what he lands on. It's also interesting because Nanami doesn't get her feelings hurt at Toga taking this stance because it flies over her head. She's like, what are you talking about? You know, I love you the most. Like, <laughs> like whatever you're saying is completely irrelevant until he says, because you're a girl who doesn't lay eggs. And then that's when it hits her that she's operating outside of a norm set by and enforced by none other than her brother, the one that she looks up to the most. So this is like worst case scenario for her. I feel like she almost would have preferred the trio or Utena or Suabuki or anyone else reinforcing this norm than the one that she looks up to the most. Yeah, I agree. Because like anybody else, she can just disregard their feelings. But him, he'll hit her where it hurts, whether he intends to or not, which he does. But Right. I mean, she just adores him. So much so that she didn't even, in all of her fantasies, like being of being put down or um, being put back in line by the standards of society toga was not even approached in her mind yeah i think because like until this moment it was impossible for her to conceive of toga actually rejecting her yeah and then right after that isn't it right after that where she realizes well i'm gonna have to reject the egg in order to you know, stay in Toga's good graces and she puts it under the tree. Not quite. Okay. The, the okay next... I thought I missed something. Yeah, no, the very next thing is the trio stirring eggs on rice. Um, oh, right, right, right. Which is delicious, but you're, the rice has to be hot enough when you do this. <laughs> um, so she's like, what happens when a woman lays an egg? What do other people do? This plays out in the background with the trio cracking eggs over their rice <laughs> and all slurping them down and doing their like trio thing where they always harmonize everything that they do. <laughs> and <laughs> she freaks the fuck out when she realizes that the boys are eating the eggs. And I mean, if you wanted something to analyze in a Freudian way, Carly, I present to you. Oh, yeah, it is one boys eating eggs. This scene. <laughs> Well, I also sort of take it as, um, you know, women get objectified in culture. I mean, even before puberty, but certainly as they hit puberty. And it's almost like um, like this is a vulnerability Nanami has now. And here are three people playing out her worst fear, which is that it's going to get taken advantage of and used. That's my take on it. And I don't have anything about this scene i just do think it's funny that we go to the shadow girls from here yeah so with the shadow girls um one of them is demonstrating to the other the idea that things are impossible only when we believe that they are impossible and she insists that she can make this egg stand on its end by putting it up on chopsticks <laughs> and um Spoiler, it doesn't work. Yeah, it doesn't work. <laughs> and then the other one says, well, why don't you just crack the bottom? And she says, that's not the point. And then proceeds to stick it with dozens of chopsticks. And then the egg like falls over and wiggles away. And they conclude, I don't 
think that was an egg. (laughs) (laughs) Which was the best foreshadowing in this episode. (laughs) So what do you think the the lesson was of the Shadow Girls? Well, I can't remember uh, which person said it, Carly or Hannah, earlier, um, about, like, fearing the unknown of the egg. But I think that this scene uh, shows that yeah, maybe there should have been some more fear with this egg <laughs> throughout the episode. Maybe you shouldn't have just been like, it came out of me and it's a part of me. And so whatever comes out of this will look like me because no. <laughs> I mean, this this is just begging for a horror movie to be made out of it. Come on. Seriously. Seriously. I think that on some level... There is the like, the naivety of the egg is real because Nanami believes it's real, except it doesn't change the reality that Nanami can't physically lay eggs. This is not Nanami's egg. Whatever is inside is not human. <laughs> you know, like, no matter how much she believes it, no matter how much she buys into this new maternal role that she has taken on, it doesn't change that this egg is fundamentally inhuman. And whatever comes of this is not what Nanami is expecting. And like getting into all of the rest of it of maybe you could have just been forthright with a single person about this topic and gotten a straight answer from somebody. Uh, Just like be candid for once instead of all this like coy innuendo trying to get at the information she wants. Uh, there's really no one that she trusts enough to just ask directly, the fuck is this thing? The closest yeah. it comes is Mickey. But even then, like she doesn't admit like where she found it, where it came from, any of that. And at the end, too, like the egg eats the shadow girls. I don't know if that's because they mistreat the egg or what's going on there or just because it wasn't an egg in the beginning and they misidentified it. But it eats them. Yeah, the way it wiggles away from them at the end, to me, is just very reminiscent of, like, it's not an egg, it's like a pupa. It was very um, bug-like imagery that was induced. Uh, Oh, I was thinking, like, like a... Yeah, like, some kind of, um, like, microscopic organism. Is that because of the chopsticks sticking out of it, or no? Yes. Yeah, um... (laughs) The chopsticks sticking out of it definitely look like flagellum, which are the things that like make cells move, like certain yeah. cells, um, sperm cells. But that's one long tail. But I don't want to get into that. But um, yeah, I am a biology major. I love getting into this. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have anything else to get in there. Um, I'm a biology dropout, so I cannot. Um, High five. Same. Same. Thank you. Oh my gosh. Wow. <laughs> wow. I saw biology and I ran far away. <laughs> Carly recognized very early that the true body horror is simply having a body. <laughs> <laughs> Ain't it though? <laughs> you just simply said existence and then got a degree. <laughs> So this is the moment where Nanami freaks out and very regretfully leaves the egg behind in a forest. Um, Interesting to me is like the parallel with the cat of there's something Uh... I don't like 
or there's something that is making me uncomfortable. So now I get rid of it. Ouch. Oh, no. Oh, no. My amazing Amy story has come full circle. Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Do tell. I'm more like, uh, I'm more like the two Nanami (laughs) influencers on this podcast right now than I thought. Uh, Well, no, just the, the whole, I didn't like it. So I got rid of it. And I think that this, I think this begs the question, where did Nanami learn that behavior from? Ouch. Ouch. Because she's not even, she didn't tell her parents about it. She didn't tell her dad about it. And so clearly, perhaps this she's isn't abandoned the, before. Yeah, this isn't the first time she's abandoned something that made her uncomfortable. Well, I feel like the cat was maybe a little bit more malicious because it was stealing attention away from the person that she loved most. Definitely, but I feel like worldview-wise, like in her world, like Toga is hers and the cat was attacking the worldview. Mm. So like, yes, malicious, but like it's because it was getting at, um, it was striking a vein, drawing blood. Yeah. So either way it was shaking up her worldview. So she had to get rid of it regardless of the intent or approach. Yes. Yeah. I think the theme here is that Nanami solves problems by just brute force overpowering them she doesn't work with things it's sort of a my way or the highway type situation or just cutting it out completely yeah she just she just cuts it out yeah 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 all or nothing so yeah what i will say is like put a pin in that question of like where did nanami learn this behavior from because that one actually will be important um in just like a a handful of episodes at this point because we're getting we are steaming toward the end here. So Nanami doesn't even make it past like dinner with Toga before immediately regretting her decision. Well, Toga again repeats that line of the reason that we get along so well is you're not a type of you're not the type of girl who lays eggs. And yeah, Nanami immediately regrets it. <laughs> yeah, Toga really serves to uphold the standard of the societal standard in this episode because we not only got the homophobia but we also get the misogyny in this one which Togo's misogynistic point blank period anyway but um and talking about this whole like you're a girl who doesn't lay eggs like using that language to basically say you're not somebody who sleeps around and gets pregnant gets herself knocked up like ew and also ow yeah the, the demands that he puts on Nanami in that way, like metaphorically, are not ones that he subscribes to himself. It's that double standard of toxic masculinity. He doesn't have to lay the eggs, so it's fine. Yeah. Once again, it just flies right over Nanami's head. And all she can think about is the, the thing that she's left behind and not the standard or whatever it is that Toga's trying to reinforce and uphold with her. Yeah, because like his entire function in this arc of the show is to be the one who reminds everyone of why they obey patriarchy. Like he's the one who brings people back into line whenever they start stepping out. And so like this is the moment where Nanami is starting to be something more than she is. And so he puts her right back in her place. And he serves that same function with Sionji and with Mickey in the previous two episodes, 
where they were starting to like Sionji was swearing off the duels entirely. Mickey had, you know, bigger stuff in mind and then was dragged back down to, hey, remember that that uh, that Rose Bride? And so then now he has this moment with Nanami and it is like in a few scenes ago, the homophobia and again, reinforcing um, you're a good girl. You're the right type of girl. You're exactly the kind of girl you should be right now. Not knowing that what she's hearing is the opposite of what he's saying because she knows she isn't what he's complimenting her for. Like that incongruity is painful to her and it brings up that regret. So she runs back and tries to rescue the egg. This is also just what happens when you put expectations on people instead of like actually talking to them about it because Toga could have approached this a whole different way of like, oh, like, and just ask questions about it. Been like, oh, you're talking about an egg. What's going on? Type of thing. And instead he was just like, you're not like those girls. You're not a girl that lays an egg. Yeah. Um, I'm going to content warning. I'm going to talk about disordered eating for a moment and distorted body image. So this is the same thing that happens with body-based compliments being the kind of thing where like you think that you're saying something good, that you're complimenting someone on some feature of their body. What you're really doing in that moment is revealing to that person the criteria by which you are judging their body. Like that is baked into what you compliment them about. Yeah. Which is what makes those compliments like such tricky territory for both anyone who's ever had an eating disorder or also what puts people at risk of it. Like you learn the standards by which bodies are judged through compliments, conversations, images, and then you turn that lens back on yourself and find your deficiencies. And so like in this moment, this dramatic irony of Toga is complimenting Nanami on not being a girl who lays eggs. Meanwhile, she internally knows, but I am that kind of girl. This also plays into like, I, I feel like this also touches on like the homophobia piece of, you know, anytime somebody says to a young boy, um, anything about having a girlfriend or a wife or a young girl, anything about growing up to have a husband, the, it's teaching the presumption of straightness. Yeah, or even just like, oh, you don't like to play with toys like that, do you? Like that kind of thing even. Yeah, exactly. It, it teaches the presumption of straightness, of cisgender. And this is where that stuff comes out, where there are assumptions just baked into the language you use that you may not even be conscious of but are inseparable to the listener. Yes. And I think too, like the listener, whether or not they like, like if they fall into that and like they are upholding or like not being punished by this beauty standard or this societal standard, they, they get pulled into the end group more. They have these positive associations with what's being said and positive associations possibly even with the idea so because 
the idea is positive for them. They, okay, I'm not being very articulate here, but like it, um, it just like strengthens the division between them. So like, that's how it keeps going. Yeah. It reinforces it, whether you agree with it or reject it. It's now something you have to confront. Yes. And depending, like, if you're, like, a negative recipient of this standard, you, depending on your sense of self-worth, you'll either reject the standard or you'll reject yourself and keep the standard. Yeah. Precisely. Speaking of rejects, the next thing we see is Sionji. (laughs) (laughs) So so Nanami goes back to rescue her egg. And turns around and Sionji has a full ass kitchen out here in the woods. Is that <laughs> not how you camp? And he is making some eggs. That's no. how I camp. Isn't that how you camp? <laughs> We've camped before. You know this. <laughs> yeah. And I learned better. <laughs> True story. Uh, Carly and I went camping a few years ago together. And we literally got frozen off the mountain. Oh, God. Um, it was horrible. <laughs> Oh my god. Oh my we were gosh. not prepared. We were not prepared for temperatures below freezing. Um it just like hit out of nowhere. It was not in the weather forecast and it just turned on us and we were dressed for like early summer late spring camping and where we were camped it fell below freezing. It was wild. Oh my god. I cannot imagine how ugly that would be. I mean, we were it literally fun. We were literally huddled together for warmth for the first few hours of it, and then in the morning we were like, "Fuck this, we're gonna go." <laughs> yeah, no, like definitely. We... I got like Brokeback Mountain vibes from that. I was like, "Did you have a Brokeback Mountain moment?" But <laughs> no, Carly is married. <laughs> okay, thanks for letting me know. And freezing temperatures and not gay vibes are why I never go camping. I'm just picturing the color of Nanami's face, or not Nanami, of Carly's face right now. Freudian slip. Spoiler, I am Nanami. I was always Nanami. Oh my gosh. When Utana put her hand on her forehead and she turned beet red, that's you. Gotcha. <laughs> no, I can't be Nanami because I don't have a brother to be in love with. <laughs> well, she's not really in love with him, more just like obsessed well, with him. Like, yeah. She adores him. She's infatuated with him, but it's definitely not romantic love. And we will see soon like what that difference is and where that line is. In the same way that we've seen it now with Kozue and Mickey, and technically, in a sense, uh, Akio and Anthe. Nanami and Toga are going to get their turn, is what I'm saying. But for now, we have Sionji, who is <laughs> frying an egg, which makes Nanami just go completely apoplectic. She calls him a monster. She's beating him on his chest. <laughs> Um, she gets some good punches in. Yeah, she and has he's, an arm, <laughs> and she's furious. And he's like, "What? Eggs are a normal thing to eat. What is with you?" And he says, "I'd be ashamed to associate with anyone who pitches a fit over one egg." 
And so like he offers her the bowl of eggs and hers is sitting on top and she rescues it and runs off while he is still speaking, <laughs> which we stand a queen here. <laughs> Everyone should run off while while Sionji is rambling. <laughs> she didn't waste a second. She didn't need to. But I don't know. Maybe she could have taken in his apron a little more like I would have. Like, that was a pretty cute apron. Yo, it was lie. such a good apron. <laughs> he has taste. I think, too, it's funny. He's like, the sister is just as impertinent as her brother. I'm like, okay, you're right. But And you would know, huh? And you would know, huh? <laughs> it's like what I want to say to him. <laughs> Tell us about your totally not gay relationship, Sionji. <laughs> Interestingly enough, uh, the title of the song that is playing is the one that is frequently associated with Nanami's pranks, which is the song Her Tragedy. That is actually going to be the title of an episode coming up that also centers something really pivotal for Nanami. And I'll talk about that stuff when we get to it. But the violin track that's playing in this scene um, is the, the song that plays whenever like she's gearing up to reveal a, a prank earlier on in the show. Um, it has also since been come to be associated with Nanami getting her comeuppance. <laughs> um, which I guess kind of happens here for the, the brief moment where she believes that the egg has been fried. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and the thing is, too, is, like, Scatter the Dark is playing, like, that love song is playing, like, when she gets the egg, and then it's, like, immediately, like, bam, off, like, when the frying pan hits the fire. And then once she's got her egg, it starts playing again. She's got her love. <laughs> And Sionji burnt his egg. <laughs> he his face was really fucking scary. Like when the egg was <laughs> blackened, like he was looking a little haggard, a little worse for wear, in my opinion. <laughs> but yeah, the song starts playing, and then she's all cute. She's dancing around, whatnot. Um, I I should have pulled up the lyric, but we get the love song just for a minute with Nanami, and then we get it with um, Utena and Anthe. And this conversation is fascinating to me, but go go on. I was not expecting a Utena and Anthe bed scene this episode because of how heavily it's featured Nanami. So I was pleasantly surprised and I feel like it revealed a lot to us. So Anthe asks Utena if she believes in reincarnation. Listener, I want you to just go ahead and go ahead and imagine it. Just go ahead and see it in your little mind's eye that I am putting the tinfoil hat on because <laughs> here we fucking go. Please You're proceed. Dusting off that little hat, I know. <laughs> <laughs> so they have a conversation about elephants going off to die alone. And Utina says that she thinks that maybe they do this to not make their children sad. And they talk about the idea of thoughts and feelings passing from parent to child as a sort of reincarnation. And Utena finally asks, why are we talking about this? <laughs> <laughs> and Anthe just kind of gets pensive about it. One of the nights that they're laying in bed together, Anthe just busts out the, do you believe in God, Utena? How to happen eventually. This is uh this is that level of um 
introspection and wild conversations. Yeah, and it's Auntie is the one who is talking about like the elephants. So like I wanted to talk about this later, but I also kind of want to say like so Choo Choo left her because it doesn't Yes. It doesn't feel I like think. she chose it. No, it doesn't. Especially given the look that she has on the end of her face at the end of the episode on her face. I have notes about that, but continue. Yeah, yeah I I don't know if it was like, <laughs> I hate to put it this way, but like a contractual thing. Like, I know, Choo Choo, every couple of years you have to go off and be with Nanami <laughs> to get reincarnated. Um, <laughs> or just go off in general. I mean, I don't know. Um, have a new mom for a minute. Yeah. <laughs> While you're still in utero. Um, <laughs> so I don't know if it's, a contractual like understanding between the two of them. I honestly kind of interpret it as Anthe's sending off her emotions for a period of time because mm. so far in this show, we interpret um, Choo Choo or at least I think both Autumn and I do at different points. Um, we interpret Choo Choo as um, her emotional state and just what she feels Honestly, given the context of the last episode and how um, Akio reacted when he saw her um, just reacting to Utena and her antics um, and her real emotions being on the surface, it would make sense to me if she went ahead and just sent him off for a little while to at least subvert Akio and get him off her case for well, a little bit. We have that in the Black Rose saga where um for that entire time Choo Choo is with Utena whenever uh Anthe is with Akio. So we have that like dissociation going on where whatever part of her psyche is represented by Choo Choo, it is safe with Utena away from whatever is happening in that room. And so it's not like too far of a stretch to think that she sends Choo Choo off. So very briefly, I'm just going to sum up the last couple plot points of the show so that we can dive into this conversation about Anthe and Choo Choo. Yep. Um, so we go back outside. The egg is gigantic. It is like lit by industrial uh, lighting for a bit. And Nanami is giving this speech about how I'll never abandon you. The egg starts to glow and then starts to shoot beams at her. And then it uh-huh. hatches and we don't see what comes out of it. So then she wakes up as if this was a dream again. The egg is in bed and it has hatched. So then we cut to the chairman's like lounge dining room area. And Anthe and Utena are, are having a conversation about not having seen Choo Choo lately. Uh, Choo Choo shows up at the door, having returned. And Anthe has this like pensive, sad look on her face. What does it all mean? Like, <laughs> <laughs> I just, I think it's really interesting that we had the scene of Nanami basically dancing through the streets on her way home with the egg. We have the scene after that with Anthe and Utena talking 
in their bed about reincarnation. And immediately after, with nothing in between of the shot of Nanami dancing in the street with her egg, that one, and then this next scene of the giant egg in what look kind of looks like a crater. Um, yeah. Lit it's a by spaceship egg. Yeah. Lit by three spotlights. Um, and her talking about I won't abandon you. Uh definitely gives me E.T. vibes, but also oh, for sure. I just think it's really interesting that we the last thing we saw with Nanami before this was her walking through the street with the egg, and now all of a sudden here it is in this crater. And she's still in her same ensemble. She's still in her nightgown that she was in before when she went to go get it from the woods. So it to me, I was like, it's almost like no time has passed. And yet here we are, which implies like, oh, maybe it was a dream. But I don't know that it was. So what I will say is that the influence of like David Lynch on this plot arc could not be clearer. In terms of like the ways in which Lynch's depictions of things take on like a very earnest and yet also very dreamlike quality. I, I think of like the show Twin Peaks, where as much as it's a show about how we consume TV shows, like uh, the way in which like soap operas work, um, he gives his characters the the chance to react like actual humans would to the wild nonsense that goes on in uh, soap operas. Rather than like the over-the-top acting of a soap opera, his characters react like they would in reality. Um, there's a lot of Lynch's lost highway in this plot arc. And so there's actually a, like, a lot of Lynch influence on Utna overall. And a big part of it goes back to like the original... Like speech I gave about the magical realism of the show, where you can't think of it as just an anime in which crazy anime bullshit happens. Like this stuff is happening to people who are fundamentally grounded in a real world where this stuff is actually impossible. And so their genuine reactions to it of shock and surprise and concern are warranted. And now we have this moment with Nanami who has gone completely down the rabbit hole of this egg is real. And we are now confronted with a scene here at the end that is so beyond impossible. It is being cast as like an alien from space having landed in a meteor and hatched. Like this egg is a meteor that has crashed down and is now hatched and it's an alien. You know, like that is the level to which we have gone. And it shows us like how far Nanami has gone in believing the reality of this egg. Like at first she started out in this place of completely disbelieving it. Like this can't happen. Humans don't lay eggs. To now, not only has she laid an egg, this is her egg. This gigantic thing came out of her somehow and she is promising to never abandon it. Like that's how far into this dreamlike reality she has gone in completely genuine ways. Like she's fallen backwards into this belief that she now holds by having resisted it every step of the way. She has had normal human reactions to a fantastical scenario at every stage of this. So that now we have this moment where it is clearly fantastical 
and she is completely bought into it. And we as the audience have also completely bought into it. I'm going to come back with uh, yet another reference here um, in this paper about the abject. And it goes on to explain that the abject threatens life. It much must be radically excluded from the place of the living subject, propelled away from the body and deposited on the other side of an imaginary border, which separates the self from that which threatens the self. Although the subject must exclude the abject, the abject must nevertheless be tolerated for that which threatens to destroy life also helps to define life. Further, the activity of exclusion is necessary to guarantee that the subject take up his or her proper place in relation to the symbolic. And when I read that, I thought, wow, that's like almost exactly what happened in this episode, right? If we're looking at sort of Nanami being this abject thing, like a person who laid an egg, she had to exclude the abject or like get rid of this egg but then in the end realizes that actually she needs to tolerate the egg and she needed it back to sort of complete the cycle of the episode yeah and we don't see what comes out of the egg when it hatches we just see the egg get covered in a golden light and then it pans to like looking as if from the top of the egg down at Nanami as like this beam, these beams are shot out of it. And also this like formless, shapeless shadow thing is the only thing that we see moving at the bottom of the screen. And then it just pans to Nanami's face. It's kind of in like wonder as she's looking at this thing hatch. Um, and then it slowly, that golden light slowly fades. So in a way, it is like birth, kind of, except for the fact that you don't wake up at the end and go, it was all a dream. <laughs> you have a responsibility to take care of. But So I'm going to drop like a piece of knowledge here that we've talked around but never directly addressed. There's a lot of dualities in this show. In particular with the colors of the characters. So you've got Mickey and Jury and Toga and Sionji. Now, they are complementary colors to one another. Red and green are opposites on the color wheel, blue and orange. Like that specific shade of blue and that specific shade of orange are on opposite sides of one another. Nanami is a very particular color of yellow. Halfway around the color wheel from her is Anthe's purple. And that is a duality that we've never actually addressed directly before. These two are the opposites of one another, the same way that uh, Toga and Sionji are, and the same way that Mickey and Jury are. They are opposites, but they are also like symbiotically linked, both plot-wise and thematically. These two constantly bully one another. One of them definitely has the upper hand in that, but no one receives the, the treatment that Nanami does by Anthe. It's like, you can say, oh, Nanami brought the wrath down upon her with like the stuff that she did back in episode four, but it has reached a wildly disproportionate level at this point. Um, and so I find it interesting that if we go down this road of 
Choo Choo was being reincarnated and the vessel for it was Nanami of all characters. That just deepens that link between those two. Especially if you look at their relationship with their older brothers, you can see how they're opposites. Nanami is infatuated with hers. Anthe, we don't really know, but I could see it being like a, I could see it being more of a resentment than a love, especially, you know, that comment that Anthe made an episode or two ago about Akio being more like her dad. As a teenager, you resent a parent more than you do a sibling in most cases, um, especially because he's always telling her what to do. He's always trying to control her. Um, so I could see the also the opposite of Nanami's relationship with her brother and potentially, even though it's just speculation, Anthe's with hers. Yeah. And also, I think like if we're talking about the rebirth piece, what does it mean for Anthe if, you know, her psychological refuge, you know, her familiar is being reborn? What has happened that Anthe needs a new incarnation of Choo Choo? Right. Yeah. And I remember saying before that if she sends him off, like knowingly to be reincarnated, like, okay, this is too much. I need, I need something now. If this is a knowing act, it could have been Akio's reactions in the last episode and like needing to hide him away for a little bit. Or it could be something that we haven't seen either yet or at all. That was horrifying enough to send Choo Choo away. Like, like I want to feel like it's a little more optimistic than that. Like, I, I want to think that like now she has Utana. And so therefore she needs to dissociate less, you know? Mm, that's true. That's a better way of looking at it. I was looking at it through the lens of like when you go through a specific trauma and your psyche is like sent elsewhere sometimes, that was more what I was picturing could have possibly happened. But I like the more positive interpretation <laughs> instead. <laughs> I do think it's really interesting that um, Nanami's last words to it were, forgive me, I swear I'll never abandon you again. Because... I almost wonder if that's something that Anthe feels too. Oh, interesting. Who do you think that Anthe has abandoned? Herself. Again, talking about that whole like when a trauma happens and you send away a piece of yourself or you send away your psyche. Um, I just think that that's really interesting that as it's hatching, that's Nanami's last words to it. And I can't help but wonder if Anthe has felt the same way with herself. Carly, what's your take on all that? Uh, gotta be honest, this is the first time that I've ever thought of any of this. So my brain is still processing <laughs> this new, new and disturbing information. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I don't really know if I have anything to say at the moment, just beyond um, like, t like to your point. I haven't even thought about Nanami and Anthe being uh, like connected in that way before. 
Um, I'm I'm just here for for funsies. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't thinking that hard into it. Um, but now I will have to consider it a little more. I also think when you look at Choo Choo and his or its, we don't know, um, relationship with the characters around itself. It has a relationship with Anthe. It has a relationship with um, Utena. And now it kind of has one with Nanami. Um, also the fact that the shell broke into three. I think that there's something kind of odd about like, I kind of feel like there's some three and like not Holy Trinity, but kind of Holy Trinity vibes. The father, <laughs> the son, and the Holy Spirit. <laughs> like, <laughs> yes. Well, kind of. We're Oh my gosh, are you talking about the zings from the egg? <laughs> oh my god. I've always thought that as well. I was more talking about um, how I think it's interesting that Choo Choo has notably three relationships with other characters on this show. Anthe, Utena, and now Nanami. When the shell broke, um, the giant shell, I believe, was in two or three pieces, but the small one um, that Nanami was handling um, when she woke up and she saw it was broken was in three pieces, three major pieces as well. Um, well, we also have like a maid mother crone thing going on with like Utna as yes. the maid, Nanami now as the mother, ironically, and Anthea's crone, which mm-hmm. we have not gotten into the conversation about princesses and witches yet but we'll get there and so i just wanted to like point that out that like we're at this point of seeing some of these associations getting made i don't have anything to say about that but i think it's interesting that the egg is red which is toga and then green which is like it's the same shade of green that auntie wore in like the ball episode and she used that to try and like embarrass auntie so I don't know if there's anything to read into that there, but I found that intriguing. Oh, you know what? I never put together that it was, it's basically the same colors as her rose bride dress. Yeah, it is. With the red and the green. I think like the I rose bride like... is probably like tealer, but. But it definitely yeah. does match the ball gown, like you said. And the egg is going to break like that dress dissolved, you know, bada bing, bada boom. Ooh, that's cracking the world's egg. Yeah, hey. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god, this whole time it's been about choo choo. All of this has been about a dress. <laughs> <laughs> oh it's man, about, like the thing that's the most convenient for it to be about at that moment. I think it is interesting if you put it in the context of it being foreshadowing instead of looking at what's happening now or what's happened in the past. If it if something happens where it gets to be too much and it breaks. No. And the egg is like devastating. Like when I see the big egg and it's like got the UFO and all of that, like that means the egg's been found. It's been labeled as like an alien, which confirms that Nanami's an alien because she laid it. And I don't know, just seeing that it like it's something that she can't control and keep with her and keep safe because it's so large. She can't even hide it. Like that's really... Like, she can't stay with her egg. The egg can't stay with her. She's losing it. Also notable that since the egg bears Choo Choo, I mean, we don't see Choo Choo come out of it, but, like, 
the implication is there that the two are one and the same. And the magical realism and crazy shenanigans, magical shenanigans that happen in this show are inherently linked with Choo Choo. For me, it questions like, we've talked about Anthe having magical powers, but is it something that operates outside of herself? Because even the way that she talked about him coming, leaving and coming back kind of maybe seemed like it's something that he did on his own. So like, is this something that she can't control after all? So I want, I want you to talk about that in the context of that final look from Anthe before I share the piece that I have to share with that. I want to hear your thoughts on that. Oh, just what do I think about her look? Yeah, that final look that she gives when when Choo Choo comes back and she's looking kind of like sad and pensive. Honestly, I wonder if maybe this whole time she's wanted to be quote unquote normal because she looks so sad at his return. And you would think that she would be happier to see him since she at the very beginning of this show talks about this is Choo Choo, my best friend in this whole world. But she's sad upon his return. So it does make me question the whole, did she, the theory I had before of, of, did she send him away knowingly? Because I don't quite know, but her reaction and Choo Choo being tied to the magical realism makes me think that maybe she thought she had a chance at being normal. Maybe she thought that there was a chance that this whole castle in the sky thing would be finally over for her maybe she thought she was done being the rose bride i don't know but the sadness there for me is like a here we go again especially when she asks about reincarnation like i just don't think that this is the first time this has happened to her it certainly isn't the first time it's happened to nanami so carly and hannah what do you have what do you think about that last look I don't know if I have something to say on the last look right now, but talking about whether or not Auntie, how much control Auntie has over the egg or Choo Choo's reincarnation, one thing I always think about um, the egg, like the pattern on the egg really reminds me of like seams. Like one thing I think about it is that like perhaps Auntie has like sewn the egg shut for Choo Choo and like it's a red thread, like the red thread of fate. Um, so I don't know how, not necessarily something Auntie has control over or she wants, but perhaps she still participates in it to some degree. Mm, Interesting. So I do have a piece of Ikuhara episode commentary where he specifically addresses the final look. And he says that Auntie's sad expression in the last scene is that becoming an adult means learning countless sad truths. Ouch. Yeah. And there's a part of me here that reads this as Anthe empathizing with Nanami, where like, oh, you are now initiated into understanding these things. You are now burdened with the knowledge that comes with adulthood. And given the relationship that everyone who is like a resident of Otori has with adulthood, Anthe, I think, buys into at least part of the idea that adulthood is something to mourn or like the loss of childhood is something to mourn. 
And so as much as she busts on Nanami, the one thing that she, I guess, like wouldn't want to burden Nanami with is actual adult understanding of things. Like that to her, I think might feel like going too far that like all of this is fun and games, but what you just experienced is something real and goes beyond this rival rivalry that we have. You now know something about adult connection that only comes from maturity. And that is not something I would wish on anybody because like, even as much as she is hurt by it, I think Anthe also plays into the same mindset that that Akio has about, you know, there's something inherently valuable about childhood that must be preserved at all costs to a monstrous degree. And like, whether you think of it as like Stockholm syndrome or something like along those lines of having bought into the ideology of her captor, I think Anthe sees this moment as something to to be sad about of like, well, now you know what it's like to, you know, have gone through puberty. <clears throat> Welcome to the part of adulthood that sucks. Because I, I think like also Anthe might associate that with with pain because of what's going on with her and Akio. That like there isn't anything good about Nanami maturing in this way. Because in Anthe's perspective, there is nothing good about it. She doesn't have healthy relationships that make this something good. Yeah. I want to add something to that. I remember earlier in the episode, there's back when Nanami has has just laid this egg there. I think there was some other character that was talking about how like this usually happens earlier for people. This happened really late for you. There was some kind of conversation around that. And I think it sort of like plays to this point about learning truths about adulthood that like for all of, you know, Nanami stuff, she was sort of innocent to those things for longer than pretty much everybody else. And now she's up to speed with the rest of them. So I guess Choo Choo is really just a harbinger. (laughs) (laughs) Telling you this whole episode was a horror movie. (laughs) (laughs) It could also explain because of Nanami's being younger than them and more childlike um, and her naivety and um, innocence could also explain why, like you were saying, Autumn, Anthe has this like resentment towards Nanami that comes out in these very shady ways of like naming these animals after her and like very subtly making fun of her in the way that in a very uh, underhanded way that only Anthe knows how to get back at people. I think what's really interesting here is that stops after this episode. Yeah. Um, You don't know this yet, but like if I remember correctly, Anthe stops bullying Nanami at this point, at least like as openly. I think it's just reserved for like commentary. (laughs) Yeah, I really think you were definitely getting at something, Chesney, because, yeah, the way that Nanami rubs at Anthe is more than just, like, how fucking evil Nanami is to Anthe at some points. Um, Like, Anthe definitely sees a lot of herself in Nanami 
whether or not she realizes it at points, um, like the way she admires her brother, um, just her general naivete, um, but, and because it's so personal, the way that Nanami bugs Auntie, she gets back at her in personal ways, because that's Auntie's style. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, definitely a little self-resentment there coming out with how she responds to Nanami. Well, and maybe it's even, like, you represent a younger version of me, I still wish I had. And I resent you for still having that while I don't. I lost something that you still have. And I wish I had that. Chesney, what are your predictions for next time? Well, we get a new trio. Um, <laughs> new, quote unquote. We, Folks, you've seen them, you heard of them, and now they're back for more. <laughs> um, Ruka Shiori Jury. Um, yeah, we have that... a new character with protagonist hair. <laughs> yeah, very much so. <laughs> um, that last shot of Jury holding her locket that has Shiori in it and her hand shaking, um, I feel like says it all for this next episode. Um, I think Jury's going to get rocked. She's going to get shaken up. Um, and yeah, I'm just looking forward for to the drama that's about to unfold. I don't really have any predictions other than like the foundation and calm period that jury has had <laughs> since her last episode <laughs> is going to get shaken up again <laughs> because really jury's been sailing. She has been cruising. Nothing's really affected her ever since like her episode in the black rose saga. Um, so now it's her turn to get her feathers ruffled. They'll be ruffled. <laughs> You made the chicken pun, not me. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you to Carly and Hannah for joining us on this episode. Uh, it has been a, a pleasure to have you both and a wild time. I am not looking forward to editing this. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you were a true But uh, thank you to our Nanami understanders. If you have your own theories on Nanami, you can reach out to us at absolutedestinyapodcast at gmail.com or you can hit us up on Twitter at zetaiunmeipod. We're also both individually on Twitter. I'm at Life in Neon. And I'm at Carcutie. Uh, full disclosure, I am taking a Twitter break right now, but, you know, still f feel free to send in all of your uh, conspiracy theories and especially, like, theories about uh choo choo with this episode because oh, i want to hear them so desperately <laughs> um carly do you have anything you want to promote um i don't think so i like my relative anonymity online very happy about that <laughs> fair her chickens fair. she's here to promote her chickens <laughs> and yeah. her new status as hen mother that's right i'm here to promote my mario party chickens yeah how about you, Hannah? Anything you want to promote? Um, I'm absolute auntie on Twitter, but um, I just wanted to thank you guys for having me. Um, I had a really good time. I really appreciate you letting me on and the um, struggles I gave you and the amount of <laughs> editing that you have to do. But yeah, I really enjoyed talking to you guys. I had a really good time. Thank you so much for letting me be here and talk about all of this. Yeah, thanks for being here. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>